I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, thank you so much for downloading our podcast, The Honey and Coke. My name is Itamar Srulovic. Me and my wife have some restaurants in Fitzrovia and a couple of cookbooks. Ever since we opened our restaurant, we've been meeting so many incredible people who are cooking, who are making food, who are writing about food. And we just want to have a little bit more time with them. We invite our favorite people once a month or twice a month to our deli, Honey and Spice. And we sit down and have a longer chat. We cook from their books or from their culture. And this is a recording of these talks. I hope you enjoy it. Tonight I spoke to the knowledgeable and extremely stylish Anissa Helo. It's been a huge pleasure to talk to her about her new book, Feast, all about food of the Islamic world. We spoke about meeting uh, restaurateurs, home cooks, street food vendors, about how she discovered new flavors. She's absolutely fascinating. Have a listen. Welcome to the Honey & Co. We are very excited to have Anissa Helo here with us. Uh, we've been reading her for many years and enjoying the books. She's written several books about the Middle East, and obviously this is the food we cook. We feel a huge kind of passion to the food, but also to your evocative and beautiful writing. And now you've taken on this huge project of taking on the food of the Islamic world, which really, I, you know, I can't believe you even tried to do this. It's quite an amazing feat, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book called Feast. Um, everybody, welcome, Anissa Helu. Um I want to hear a bit about you for maybe people that don't know much about you, a bit about your background and what, how you got to this world, because you didn't start here. I didn't, no. I mean, in London or in the No, I mean world? in the food world. <laughs> also um, not in London as well, no? <laughs> uh, well, I'm half Lebanese, half Syrian, and I came here when I was 21, uh, which was a very long time ago. And, and it was before the civil war. So I left Lebanon because I wanted to leave Lebanon, not because I, um, you know, because I had to. Um, and when I first came here, I wanted to be an interpreter because I was very good at languages and I was on my way to Geneva. But it so happened that I fell in love with somebody here and I stayed. And um, 
I didn't really know what to do once I decided not to go to Geneva. But a friend of mine who's now sadly dead, Zaha Hadid, way before she became very famous, um, this, uh, you know, I was talking to her. I had done an interior design course and I wasn't sure. I didn't like the idea of becoming an interior designer. And she said, why don't you do the works of art course at Sotheby's? And I said, mm, that's not a bad idea. I didn't really know anything about art. I mean, I was very young. I was 21 or 22. But I decided that I would cram a book about Cezanne and go to my interview and pretend that I was very knowledgeable about <laughs> And um, it kind of worked. And I got high. But when you grew up, was art or... No. Because you're very stylish. Were you always very stylish? I mean, no, seriously. I'm wondering if it's something you grow up with or it's my, something you can acquire later my, my, my mother is very beautiful and very stylish. And I think in Lebanon, people are fairly superficial and into sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I kind of grew up with it. Um, no, but I mean, you know, I'm not superficial, but I do like looking good if I can. So yeah. I pay attention a little bit. Um, so you ended up in the art world. I ended up in the art world. I was, I was, t you know, I was accepted on the course, unlikely as it were, because I knew nothing. And not only that, but I was hired at the end because I, it was the beginning of oil dollars and everybody thought I was a rich Arab princess <laughs> and I wasn't. <laughs> um, maybe that's the Thank stylishness works. <laughs> Um, but I was hired to become their Middle Eastern lady and it was great. And for 20 years I was in the art world and as initially at Sotheby's, then I had a shop in Paris where I lost all my father's money and, <laughs> <laughs> and then I became a consultant and that's when I started buying art for members of the Kuwaiti royal family and others. And then there was the Gulf War in the early 19, 1990, I think, or 91. I had always wanted to write, but in, initially I wanted to be like Simone de Beauvoir. You know, I had kind of higher ambitions than becoming a cookbook a food, writer. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, it was like a teenage dream, more or less, because I was reading, you know, the French existentialist and all this. But I had always wanted to write. And in, when the Gulf War happened, uh, because I wasn't working, nobody was buying art. I decided to write a book about collecting because I was collecting myself and I was collecting with not much money because I wasn't a rich Arab princess. And I thought I could write a book about people who made, put together interesting collections like my fishing collection with very little money. And so I got myself a literary agent and we started talking about, you know, the book and... And she introduced me to a Lebanese friend and, and at the dinner they were started talking about cookbooks and I was listening to them and it was 1992. So it was the beginning of the trend towards, you know, cookbooks. And so I was listening to them and I said to them, well, I could write a book about Lebanese food. I had always been interested in food. My mother was an amazing cook and, and I was an obsessive sort of shopper, eater, not cook because I didn't like cooking that much or at least I didn't like domesticated cooking so I kind of thought why not I could write a cookbook and in those days I had a boyfriend who had an extensive collection of cookbooks and he was a great cook yeah so I went to him and I said guess what I'm going to become a cookbook writer <laughs> <laughs> and I need your help because I know nothing about it <laughs> And uh, my agent happened to be Alan Davidson's daughter. 
And so she took me to the Oxford Symposium and introduced me to almost everybody in the food world. And I picked a few mentors. And, and when I said to her I would write a book on Lebanese food because there isn't a cookbook on Lebanese food that's user-friendly, she said, funnily enough, I have a publisher, Grub Street, who's looking for an author to write a book on Lebanese, on Lebanese food because they like, they yeah, like yeah. Lebanese cuisine. And I said, I'm your person. But this said, I thought I could do it in three months, you know, because I knew nothing about cookbook writing and it didn't even occur to me that it was a genre, a literary genre. I thought, you know, I'll put together my mother's recipes and then it'll be fine. And then she made me write a proposal that took six months. <laughs> Just a proposal. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'd be at the British Library and researching, calling my mother and you know, and then I put this proposal together that was 80 pages. I mean, it was like a book. Um, and in the meantime, I understood, you know, talking to people who wrote about food. And, and I understood that it was much more serious than I imagined it to be. And Grub Street liked the idea and the proposal and they bought it. And then it was another two and a half years of hard work, kind of fighting with my mother because she would tell me a pinch of this, a handful of that, yeah. you know, cook until it's done. And I say, mom, you know, like I'm writing for people who don't know how to cook. You have to give me like. And so I'd cook with her and we'd fight about, you know, like measurements and and how to write recipes. But she was great, my mother, because she wrote all the recipes in Arabic. I think about 200 of them or maybe more. And and precise enough for me to be able to convert to them, them. recreate. Despite the cook until done and all this. And because yeah. she was in London with me, uh, we were able to kind of sort it out. But what I, I wish I had known what a great, I don't know, I'm sure you know Nevin Halici, the author of uh, Turkish cookbook. She's a wonderful, she's my Turkish food guru. And she had a wonderful method of picking up recipes from people. She would take the ingredients already measured, weight and everything, give them to the cook yeah. and not touch, not argue or touch anything. Let them do what they want to do and then measure after what, what was, was left. left. This is an excellent way to do yeah. it because we always find this when we go back home or when we go traveling. It is this. It's how much your hand can take. You take, you know, you take just enough water. What is enough water? It's a very funny exactly. way of explaining yeah. a recipe. So I wish I had known that I would have saved a lot of arguments with my mother. <laughs> but anyway, um, so it, you know, and that's how I got into food and the book was successful. I enjoyed the work and um, and the writing was interesting. I mean, it wasn't the kind of writing that I wanted to do, but it was it was literary enough because if you like introduced the recipes and wrote introductions and researched the history, it became much more interesting. I think your writing is very, very clearly distinctive from other people's in the fact that, first of all, you're brutally honest when you write, which <laughs> I absolutely love that. I think there is... I don't know if you guys know any of these passages and I, I don't, you know, we've decided not to read from the book today, but you, if you hate something or you think it's ugly, you very much state that or you say something smells quite bad. Um, and there's one particular story in this book about a camel hemp, which uh, it's quite long, but if you can tell me a bit about it. And I, I love this kind of honestly in saying something was not very good the first time you tried it. <laughs> so, yeah. well, I mean, the story of the camel hemp was really interesting. First, I, I had tasted camel in Syria. I didn't know anything about camel meat and camel eating until I got to Damascus one year, about maybe 25 years ago. And I was walking in a very street foodie part of Damascus. 
And I was actually with my mother and I came face to face with a camel head, like still bloody, dripping blood, hanging outside a little shop. I didn't even notice it was a butcher. And I stopped and I thought, wow, that's, that's something. And uh, then I looked, you know, to see what it meant. And I saw the butcher. So I went in or maybe he was standing by the door and said, what's this? Does, I mean, are you going to eat it? Are you going to do something with it? And he said, I'm a camel butcher. And I thought, wow. So I turned to my mother. I said, we have to taste this. So we go into the camel butcher, which was a really small shop, very rickety, you know, with a charcoal grill at the back like they all have. And I said to the guy, well, make me some kebabs. And he said, no, you don't want it cut in pieces because it's too tough. I'll make you, you know, like he called it kebab in Syria, but it's kafta in Lebanon. And I said, fine, you know, do what, whatever you want to do. And my mother, being very elegant and like not at all a <laughs> street food person, was like sitting there quite, you know, like unsure about what to do. I said, come on, mom, you know, we have to taste this. It's my job. I have to try. And so he grilled the meat and it was totally uninteresting. I mean, there was nothing special about <laughs> See, this it. Is, but this is what I love about, you know, cookbook writers, they go into this, everything was amazing. But I love that you just say it just wasn't very nice. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it had, it, it didn't taste of anything special. It was a bit like beef and a bit like lamb and a, a bit drier, a bit gamier, but, you know, it was fine. So that was my introduction to camel. But then I was doing a TV series in the Emirates. And, you know, I was going around the Emirates to discover Emirati food. The, the series was called Al Shaf Yaktashif, meaning the, the chef discovers. And I was, I had a co-presenter who was a, a poet showing me around. And one of the episodes was a beautiful party at a, some grandee in, I think, Alain, I can't remember, in one of the smaller Emirates, with a camel. And a camel hump, because apparently the camel hump is the most important part of the camel and, you know, the one that they give to honored guests. I got very excited. Wow, I'm going to. I didn't do Instagram in those days, not not <laughs> even obsessively. I mean, I didn't do it. I kind of resisted Instagram. But I was really excited about, like, trying something totally new and unusual. We arrive at this grandee's house, kind of compound with several houses, and the majlis, which is the section where the men receive. And I get out of my car, we had, you know, we were in a convoy, and my producer says, well, you can't come with us. And I looked at him, and I said, what do you mean I can't come with you? He said, it's only for men. I said, well, what about the camel hump? And he said, you can't come with us. I said, well, you have to send me some camel hump because I have to try <laughs> it. <laughs> so they sent me to the mother and the wife in another house, and I'm like seething. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm the co-presenter. I should be with them. Anyway, I wasn't allowed to go, and they didn't send me a, a bit of camel hump. They just sent me grizzled bits of old camel that were disgusting. But being very polite and charming, I was very nice with the ladies. And and you know, at the beginning, I was like really impatient, and I was the food wasn't arriving, and I was talking nicely with them and everything. And finally, I gave up, and I said. When is the food going to arrive? And are we going to get some camel hump? And they said, don't worry, you know, we'll get it, etc. So finally the food arrived, I didn't get it. And I was absolutely <laughs> devastated because and then I got back to the guys and I said, I can't believe you did this to me. And now you have to find me a camel hump <laughs> for <laughs> me to taste. 
And they all raved about it and said it was amazing. And, you know, the platter of rice was enormous. And anyway, two days later, I had to go to into a catering kitchen to learn about uh, uh, to learn how to cook Emirati dishes, a huge catering kitchen where they cook like for thousands of people. So I go and I was excited about that. But I didn't I mean, I didn't expect anything because I didn't really know. And I arrive and they're cooking a camel <laughs> for a party, a, a brother who's coming from a, a trip abroad and the guy, the, the other brother wanted to honor him. So I went to the chefs and I said, listen, whatever you do with this, you have to give me a piece before you send that <laughs> camel hump away. So I photographed everything and, you know, I was watching them pre prepare the camel and the hump and everything. And he very kindly gave me a taste. It was a little bit better. It wasn't particularly, <laughs> you know, amazing, but it was fine. And then I decided to write an article about camel hump for Lucky Peach. And I was at the Emirates Literary Festival, and it so happened that one of my friends is the daughter of the ruler of one of the Emirates. So I went up to her at the opening ceremony, and I said, I need a camel. <laughs> because, I mean, the story is that you can't buy a camel hum by itself. You have to buy the whole camel. So I went to Sheikh Abudur and I said, well, I'm writing this piece about camel hump and I need a camel. And can you help me? And being very generous and very kind, she said, of course. So they organized. And she said, do you want to go and buy the camel and at the market or just go to the slaughterhouse? I said, no, it's fine. I'll just go to the slaughterhouse. And I went looking like more, I mean, summer clothes like this. I didn't even think about blood and the slaughterhouse. <laughs> I was wearing beige trousers and red moccasins <laughs> and moccasins and a white shirt with my camera. And I arrived there. It was impeccable. The butchers were impeccable. Everything was like spotless. And that beautiful baby camel arrives alive in the truck. And he must have known that he was going to be killed because he started paying as soon as they you know, started pulling him off the truck. And the interesting thing was that they, they sedated it by spraying it with water, like the mouth. They kind of opened its mouth and sprayed water and it, it settled down completely and then they slit the throat and the blood came out and I like went back because <laughs> I didn't want to get dirty. Um, and then I watched them like skin the camel. I didn't actually go to the butchering, but they gave me the camel hump. I didn't want any of the rest, the, the rest of the camel. And I carried this camel hump to my brother's flat to cook <laughs> it there. And my brother was like, hmm, <laughs> what is she doing? And the housekeeper even worse than my brother because I made her carry it to take pictures on the terrace. And she was like, she didn't <laughs> know what to do with that thing. But that was actually very good because it was a very young baby camel, milk fed, and absolutely, it was really good. Even my brother was impressed because, you know, I had marinated it, prepared it, and roasted it very nicely. And, um, and then I decided to have a camel feast on my brother's terrace, but I never got right to doing that. To doing <laughs> but uh, this aspect of, like your pictures a lot on Instagram and some in the book, not as many in the book as I would like personally. But um, And you're also right about your fascination as a child from butcher shops and heads of animals and, and quarters hanging and stuff like that. Do you get a lot of grief from people? Yeah. I mean, when I... That camel hump story, when I went to the slaughterhouse, I actually 
put pictures of the camel being slaughtered with the blood and everything on my blog. And for, I don't know, a month, I would get like the most abusive emails. I don't know how, I mean, they could get my email from my blog, but I would get these terrible emails like you're a, you know, you should be slaughtered and you're a child. Because also I take pleasure in, <laughs> in kind of writing a bit like, naughtily because I compare the pink skin to a baby skin and uh, so I make it a little bit more gory than it is which amuses me but it didn't amuse these people it, it, it definitely shows those French origins that you wanted to you know to write it it comes through quite well in that writing I like that a lot I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, talking about a process like this and seeing kind of gruesome things, I'm sure in a, in a lot of the places you went to, you ate some things that were quite horrible. Can you tell us a couple of the things that... You well, definitely I think the, the most, the vilest thing I ever ate was an ant in Brazil. I was sitting actually next to Carla Bruni's father. At a, it was a food festival, very smart food festival in Sao Paulo. And, um, and there was this chef from the Amazon. And they were talking about ants. It was before Noma and the ants of Noma. It wasn't like a trendy thing yet. And they had these like huge ants on a plate passing around for whoever wants to try them. And because I'm not squeamish, I looked at I, Maurizio, I think he was called. I said, I looked at him, I said, should we try? And he said, why not? And I then picked up an ant. It, reluctantly, I have to say, because despite my gorish, my, my taste for the gore, I'm not that like into ant eating. <laughs> who is it? <laughs> who is it? Exactly. So I, I picked up one gingerly and thought, okay, you know, do it, you know. And it was disgusting, like totally disgusting. Are they I alive bit into or it. I can't remember, but I, I remember biting into it and a horrible liquid <laughs> coming out onto my tongue. And it was absolutely vile. 
Um, so that was bad. But I don't remember. I don't remember much much worse than that. That's it's not that bad. Just an ant is okay. It's probably quite small as well. It's not. Like it was a big one. It wasn't small at all. It was like this. Yeah, but that's still not like a mouthful. Maybe. Anyway, in this book where you're kind of addressing the Islamic, so you're not actually Muslim. You're no. Christian born, yeah. yeah. So why address the Islamic world? What? Well, because basically. It's a religion and a people that are vilified since 9-11. They have been vilified more and more. And, you know, I had been, I had been discussing a book with an, with an agent, not my present agent, but an agent before, who said, why don't you write a general Middle Eastern cookbook? And I was thinking, why should I do that? Claudia Rodin has done it very well. Paula Wolfert has done it in a different way. And I didn't, wasn't particularly inspired in doing something which I would have brought a lot of fresh stuff to, but not exactly. Um, so I kind of left it. I thought about it and I left it. And then about a couple of years later, with this whole Islamophobia going on, I was thinking, well, why don't I write a book about the food of the Islamic world? In fact, it was Foods of Islam at that time. And I discussed it with my agent. And I said, I think that's a very good idea because it presents the religion and the people in a positive light as against, you know, all these, you know, terrorism and articles and books depicting them as if they didn't have a civilization. I mean, it was a very rich civilization, rich history, rich culinary history as well. Um, and so I discussed it with my agent here and I discussed it with my agent in New York. They both liked the idea. We started, uh, you know, wanting to sell it here, but in fact, the offer was too um, too low for what I wanted, the research that I wanted to do, and so I refused the offer here, and I I said to my agent in New York that she should try and and sell it, and she did very quickly, and then I started working on it. And it's quite amazing because you actually follow the Islamic world rather than the Middle East, and there is a yeah. lot of talk about kind of Middle Eastern cuisine now, but actually the Islam obviously spreads quite a lot further because you get some into Africa and definitely into Asia and most of Indonesia is, is Islamic. So did you see a very common thread running through the whole thing or were the changes in the East and kind of Africa quite different than what is conceived as Middle Eastern cooking? Well, yeah, no, I think there is, a, there, I mean, there are different cuisines and you have, but the common thread is that in almost Apart from, I mean, one thread is the empire, the Islamic empire, which stops actually at Indonesia. But all the countries have been occupied or were part of an Islamic empire, one, one or the other. Um, but the common threads in, in, from the culinary point of view is first the restrictions, the religious restrictions. And second, the, the staples, the important, that's how I divided the book, by essential ingredients. or And so there are two staples, bread and rice. And in some countries, there it's bread and rice. And in other countries, it's bread or rice. And then you have the date that's very important to all Muslims, even in Indonesia, which is like a slightly different culture. And then, you know, Ramadan and, and you know, and then the whole beast, you know, kind of celebrating by killing a whole beast. So you don't. And the, the one thing that you find across the whole Islamic world is um, kebabs. Yeah, that's definitely. I mean, I, I thought in the book that was really well done first of all because it 
gave me an insight that I don't always have into, you know, placing the origins, placing how it being, you know, Islamic in the start and what threads through it, how to use the spices and how that runs through. And I also like that part where you write about spices kind of slightly changing between uh, between the areas where you would kind of characterize maybe Indian with more ginger. And then I, I, I like that aspect of it. I think it's a very knowledgeable book. You must have studied quite a bit to, to get this. There's a lot of information that is... Yeah. How, how do you go about it? How, where do you start? It's, it's a massive undertaking. Well, yeah? I've traveled, I traveled a lot for the book. I read a lot. I have a, I have a sizable library uh, myself. And, but, you know, like um, the way I like to research my, um, you know, my books and my work is on the ground, like by traveling, by meeting people, by talking to people, tasting the food, watching the cooks prepare so that I understand the food, not from an abstract point of view, but from a practical point of view. And then I, you know, cross-reference, you know, intellectually, you know, by reading books, by uh, reading history, by uh, also researching online, you know, watching videos on YouTube of various kind of cooks do it. And then you find out, oh, this cook is making it like this and this other cook is making it like this. And, and then, but because of the experience that I have in the 25 years that I've been writing about food, I can understand when the cooks are doing something not quite as, they should. as it should be. Yeah. You know, and even if I don't know the cuisine very well, I, you know, I can suss out, you know, where something is wrong. And because I'm quite well connected and I have friends a bit everywhere, then I can call or email friends and say, by the way, this recipe, you know, I've seen it made like this and like that. And some people have told me this. And so what is the story? Now I don't ever want you to read any of our books because I'm like, please don't look for the, you know, the, the exact origins. And you wrote the book meeting people, different people, so you, you, some home cooks and some stall holders and actual restaurateurs and stuff like that. Who do you think you learned the most from? Like, is it the home cooks or is it people in, in a kind of food market? I think the home cooks are the stars, really, for me, and especially in these worlds, because, you know, it's a completely different approach from the Western approach, where the creativity is within the restaurant and the chefs, the restaurant chefs. I'm actually looking for traditional recipes and for historical recipes. I'm not really searching for creativity as much as I like it and go out to eat it. In my work and in my books, I'm looking to preserve um, culinary lore. Food is culture in the, in the end, you know. And so people in the... When I started writing about food, there was very little, you know, research done. I mean, now it's changed a lot. You have courses in universities and everything. And it's very important to kind of pass on the knowledge to future generations, even if they're not cooking now, eventually. You know, when I started as a young girl, I didn't want to cook at all because I was liberated and I didn't want to be domesticated. And there was no man who was going to tell me, cook me this for dinner. Absolutely not. They could cook for themselves. Um, so I, I wasn't at all interested in cooking. But I knew a lot about cooking because I was always with my mother and grandmother and aunt in the kitchen. And I was interested in the food much more than in the cooking. And then, you know, when I started writing about food, I realized that it was something very interesting. Yeah. And when 
talking of this and being a woman and obviously the kind of idea that actually as a liberated woman you don't want to end up in the kitchen because that's what grandmothers did and you know when you were meeting people now is there quite a difference between people cooking at home because it seems like most street vendors seem to be men and most of the people cooking at home are still women yeah changing not changing well you see a few more women on the street uh, but actually I was in Fez just now and uh, recently a few months ago and the division on the street is that the baking is on the whole done by women and the sort of meat and cooking and like heavier sort of work is done by the men. It's still a very sort of traditionalist culture across, in Indonesia it's different, you see a lot of women stallholders. Um, and they're fairly kind of liberated, even if they all wear the hijab. And But on the whole, it's men on the street, women in the home, and men in the restaurants. And did they have? Did the men on the streets and the restaurants have any problem talking to you? Or they no. Like sometimes they get annoyed with me because, like, I take <laughs> photographs without asking, and you know, I'm like, a lot of my friends think that I'm a bit like forward. And I say to them, if you want to catch the moment, you cannot, like, I cannot waste my time saying, can I take your picture? I take the picture. Then if they tell me off, I smile and <laughs> hopefully they're okay with it. <laughs> you know, and if they're not, I just turn around and go away and it doesn't bother me. Um, so it, it's, I do get grief sometimes, but very rarely. I did actually in Senegal. It was an interesting um, country. They were absolutely adamant about me not photographing them. That there was, I didn't understand the reason, but it was, it's the only country where I was con- constantly rejected, really? you know, as a food researcher. They, they were just, it didn't matter because the food wasn't so great anyway, so, <laughs> and it was very dirty, so it didn't, it didn't bother me that much. But <laughs> they were, they were absolutely like, there was something in their culture that they didn't like about me photographing them. But, you know, occasionally I get somebody telling me off. But as I'm like, I don't care. So <laughs> I just, you know. If we go back to the book, just as a kind of way to finish, it is a lot of recipes you can completely cook in the UK. You're, nothing is, there's a couple of ones, actually, that you ask for camel meat. Or <laughs> you suggest, <laughs> you can you suggest alternatives. <laughs> yeah, you can. But I've never cooked camel meat. Maybe this is going to be our next big thing. <laughs> but... Um, most of it is quite approachable. No, you can, yeah, you can cook everything here. And do you I think mean, there's a reason? What I'm trying to get to is: is there a reason why the Middle Eastern food is becoming such a big thing in the UK? Well, I, I think it's becoming a big thing everywhere in the world. Um, you have trends, you know. Like when I first came to London in '73, there was one Japanese restaurant. Nobody at sushi. Nobody knew about sushi, you know, and we would go to this restaurant and, you know, there were very few people who went there. We happened to like it and, you know, we became kind of, uh, it's still there, by the way, that restaurant. And so, and then, hmm, the Funi in George Street now, it used to be in Blandford Street. Um, And and now, like, you have sushi in the supermarkets. Yeah. And Thai food was nothing 20 years ago, and it became a big thing. Mexican food, who knew about Mexican food in England? So you have trends, and so each cuisine has its moment. 
um, b between, you know, I mean, uh, the thing about the, f the trend in food, there are different reasons. You have the food writers like Yotam, like you, like Claudia, like me, even though I'm not particularly a trendsetter as such because my work is much more a sort of traditionalist um, approach. But there's also the sharing plates, the mezze, the way of eating that people like, uh, the, the variation, the health aspect. So apart from the fact that every few years one cuisine or one type of food is going to become fashionable, there are reasons for it. The sushi thing is also linked to health and... Um, and, and I think the, the, the sort of sharing, the meze, the small plates w became a trend before the Middle Eastern yeah. food kind of took off and went into the mainstream. And you're living not in the UK at the moment, most no. of the time. No, you're I in live Sicily? in Sicily in yeah. the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> On an island in the sunshine, it's the best place to live. Um, do you cook this kind of food there? I do, um, and but it's not so easy there because you don't have global ingredients. They love their own food, and I have to take my own ingredients there. And like, if I want to make tabbouleh in Sicily, it's difficult because they usually give you a few sprigs of parsley in the market as a throwaway because to put in your broth or to cut up and do the sofrito with. And when I asked one of the farmers to give me like a case of parsley, she looked at me and she thought <laughs> I was crazy. And I can't buy mint all year round because it's very seasonal. So they only have mint in the summer. So if I want to use mint in the winter, either I have to grow it or I have to use dried mint. They don't have coriander, for instance. Yeah. So I can't, you know, I have to grow. I happen to have land and I can grow stuff if I want to. But there are, they're very, very, very attached to their own food. And they're, for the time being, they're not into global cooking at all. So is your next book a Sicilian? No, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> you're not going to trace the whole of Sicily. They have quite a, a diverse yeah, culture around yeah. there as well. I'm going to open up to questions from the audience, if anyone has anything. Itamar, what did you want to ask? Well, a lot of things, but do you have any... <laughs> this is by, by, it's an argument between us who is going to ask the questions this evening. So now yeah, he's... Uh, you can see who won. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you have any kind of scary or dangerous moments researching this book? Like you were starting to say in Senegal and things I'm just like going to repeat the question. Yeah. Did you have any scary moments researching this book or dangerous moments? No, I wouldn't say I had dangerous moments, but I did. I mean, there were several countries that I would have liked to go to, but that I couldn't, like Mali, Burkina Faso, Afghanistan. I mean, the, several countries that I would have loved to go to that I couldn't or I didn't feel safe enough to go there on my own. And in Senegal, for instance, I, I mean, usually I'm very... I'm aware of the safety or of the fact that I'm a woman on my own, so I take a guide or I have friends, you know. So I don't put myself in a... Although recently in Fez, I'm, I love bread and baking. I did a book on, on baking. And so whenever I see a bakery, I just like... Zoom in. Zoom in. And in this bakery, which was underground, was really interesting. So... I, I kind of um, didn't even think. I just went down the stairs into this dark hole and there were all these guys looking at me and I was thinking, what an idiot. How could I put myself in this situation? Like, 
I was on the ground with about five, six guys and no one. And like if they wanted to pounce on me or whatever, nothing, I couldn't have I couldn't have gotten out of it. So, that, you know, occasionally I do something foolish like this, but um, I'm no, I don't have any problems. Yeah, this. Yeah. Um, other than camel hump, what kind of foods do you like eating? What are your favorite foods? Uh, of my own culture or out any? any? Japanese food. Yeah. And is that for the health? Or? No, I just love their approach to aesthetics and seasonality. And it's a very sophisticated cuisine and that appeals to me a lot. And it's very pure, it's very clean tasting. It's not messy. Even though you had a picture of a breakfast that is like my favorite breakfast, cucumbers and labanet. Oh, yeah. This is like the, you know, yeah, the best but then that's my, I mean, that's my food, which I love. But, you know, I, I mean, I love Lebanese, Syrian food, but I love Italian food as well. And but if I were to kind of like if somebody put me on a desert island and said, what would you eat every day? Well, I guess I would have to think about it. But Japanese would come to, you know, mind. Just um, wondering if there was a particular dish that you discovered <coughs> when you were doing your research that was kind of surprising uh, and delightful that you've never come across before. Wow. Should no. I repeat? I'm just going to repeat, sorry. Um, was there any kind of dishes you came across that surprised you quite a bit or that you found really interesting? Um, now she has to have an answer for it because if not... Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I get asked this question all the time and I can never really answer it first because I have a lousy memory and I don't remember <laughs> and second because I you know there wasn't like the discovery like the camel meat in Damascus 20 years ago with, that I had never seen and never tasted but what was very interesting was the variations like the biryani you know I knew there were different biryanis but I didn't realize there were so many variations on the biryani or even the flatbreads you know I could have written like two or three volumes if I'd wanted to mainly on the variations and on the regional uh, differences and so it wasn't particularly a dish or uh, the techniques were interesting like when I was in Zanzibar we went for a Ramadan iftar meal and I saw the mother prepare a bread that First of all, it was a, a batter more than a dough. And she was beating that batter and lifting it. It wasn't like very, very, I mean, it was manageable, but it was very, very, very soft dough that she, she developed the gluten by beating it and lifting it and beating it in the bowl. And then they cooked it in a hot pan over charcoal and they, they uh, sprayed the pan with water, then spread this very, very loose dough in the pan and let the bread stick to the bottom of the pan so that they could turn the pan over on the over the fire so to cook the top of the bread and then with a knife they scraped it off you know it was a to eat it it wasn't particularly different from um you know a kind of fluffy pugliese for focaccia let's say it was a slightly different but not that different but the method was very interesting and i had never seen that before are you also a little bit sentimental? I mean, is this kind of nostalgia? <laughs> Absolutely because, because not. Because you do read, you know, in Levant, which is, I read it back to back and a lot, there is a lot about, 
you know, growing up and, and, and your family and, and all that. And you, yeah, I, I mean, I'm definitely not sentimental. In fact, I'm pro probably quite heartless. I mean, I'm very, very <laughs> lucid. <laughs> Um, and I don't like sentimentality as such. I think memories are different. You know, n nostalgia, you can be nostalgic or you can tell stories of your past or other people's past in an engaging way without being sentimental. That's the trick. I mean, the trick between good writing and annoying writing is that the sentimentality kind of is cloying. You don't, you want to be, you want to try and be universal and make people remember things of their past without annoying them, you know, uh, and bringing it too much to you as a, per, you know, as a personal thing. I don't know how to explain that. I'm not being very articulate, but there is a difference between evoking beautiful memories and being sentimental and very personal about it. I think it's very clear. And I think if, if, any of you haven't read anything she's written yet, you really should. This book is amazing, but also Levante, the previous one, you won't be able to get hold of it because it's out of print until the next print comes out because we tried to get some more. Uh, I think we have maybe one left. This is mine. No one's buying this one. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it's really, it, it's worth doing that just because I love that pure honesty. I think there is so much food writing that is... Yeah, it beautifies something that maybe isn't beautiful. And actually, the reality of food is it serves everyone. Everyone eats. You you know, you get a part of a culture by eating, but it doesn't have to be specifically beautiful or amazingly delicious or anything like that. This is what I find so amazing about this book. So well written and such an undertaking that I'm thank you. truly impressed. Uh, everybody, thank Anissa for coming today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey and Co. or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. We would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at iTunes. Only five stars, please. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing. And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. Bye, Felicia's. We spoke about discovering new recipes. We spoke about cooking a camel, a camel hump. Uh, I don't know how to say it, camel hump. When you, you spoke said about it first, you said you, said you swapped hump. the vowels. Hump, 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 hump. You said camel hump. It's very hard to say, it camel. Fast, it's really well. hard to yeah. say. Uh, we spoke about cooking a camel hump. 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 We spoke about cooking a camel hump. I don't know how to say it. We spoke about cooking a camel. Camel juice, camel juice, camel juice. Hump a camel, hump a camel. No, but I can't say hump, camel hump. We spoke about cooking... Hump a camel. We spoke about cooking hamel cum. It's a really hard one to say, I'm sorry. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 